Our topic tonight is mindfulness of thoughts. When I spoke here a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about mindfulness of feeling tone, which is the second of the four foundations of mindfulness as taught by the Buddha. He taught that suffering can be vastly lessened through mindfulness practices specifically mindfulness of the body, which includes breath and posture and movement of all sorts and awareness of its impermanence and fragility. Mindfulness of feeling tone, noting when um, our perception of a phenomena is pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. And when we can catch that with mindfulness, we short circuit reactivity. And then the third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of thoughts. And like the others, this is a, when we begin to practice more and more with this, it can be a really wonderful ally in deepening our ability to be peaceful in, in more and more varied circumstances. So we're not just waiting for, you know, a sunny day at the beach to feel peaceful, but more and more we can be peaceful in the midst of things as they are, which is one definition of equanimity, to have a capacity for calm in the midst of life in all its uh, joys and sorrows and unpredictability and change. One of the things about uh, being a living being in this world is that we are subject to pain. We all are. And this is a different concept from suffering. The word dukkha in Pali is usually translated as suffering. And uh, more modern translations of the word dukkha include stress and reactivity. Essentially, dukkha or suffering, um, or the, the part of dukkha, the part of, of pain that's workable for us and that can relieve startlingly enormous amounts of our suffering is the reactivity part. So the Buddha taught that there are three kinds of pain and the first two are inevitable. And how we work with those is with acceptance and compassion. So the first one is the pain of pain when we uh, break an arm, for instance, or there's just simply physical pain in the body. And the second is the pain of change. Because of the truth of impermanence, there is always change. And some of that change is wonderful and good. When something difficult leaves our life or when the flowers bloom in the spring, some change is beautiful and good and some change is hard. It just is losses that we don't want. Mm. illness and aging and death, 
was big part of the motivation for the Buddha taking on practice and then teaching. Pain of change is inevitable because again of the truth of impermanence. So those first two we work with, with compassion and acceptance, or we don't. And the third form of uh, pain is the pain of reactivity. And that is what's where we get to work. We can use our efforts and all these practices that we do, mindfulness, which gives us a little momentary break from that fusing with or trance with thoughts, uh, loving kindness, which is teaching thoughts to be friendly and befriending rather than aversive and craving, compassion, which teaches the thinking mind to turn toward pain rather than away from it, rather than pushing it away. Appreciation and gratitude, working with the thinking mind to savor and enjoy and be present for the good stuff. And equanimity, teaching the thinking mind that it is okay to practice being with life rather than always trying to make it meet our greatest wishes being with life on life's terms, being with reality rather than fighting reality has the effect of lessening our suffering. All of these practices are essentially working with our ideas, our thoughts, the thinking mind, allowing it to let go or transforming it in different ways so that we suffer less. So when the Buddha talks about this in the third foundation of mindfulness, he speaks about mind states, not thoughts, but mind states. And this is a translation of the Pali word citta, which really means both thoughts and emotions. So both thoughts and emotions arise, and they arise sort of like in a, in a, I, th I think of it as sort of an eight shape, the shape of a number eight, because for me, my emotions mostly happen down in my torso. That's where I feel them. For, for others, it can be more in the shoulders or the jaw or the face, even. But for me, it's down in here. So, and often when we talk about the heart, we're talking about emotions, whether the heart is open or contracted, talking about different sort of somatic aspects of emotion, but they're very related. So when we talk about mind states, we're not just talking about the mind as we understand it presently in Western, that, that word in Western thought, we're talking about the whole, the whole reactive response or response generally to whatever's arising in the moment, both thoughts and feelings. And there's a strong relationship between the two. Joseph Goldstein, the teacher Joseph Goldstein, 
tells the story of um, he was he you know he is one of the founders of Insight Meditation Society and he's been living there or in a house first in the in the actual building and now for many many years in a house right next door for decades and he's very deeply involved with that center and not long ago he was walking if you've ever been out there you maybe know this walk there's a road walk that's a loop from the center back to the center it's several miles i'm going to guess three or four miles and it goes around a lake it's a really beautiful walk and in the fall the it's got the glorious colors of the east coast falls so he was on a walk and he noticed that um when he thought about a board meeting that was coming up later in the afternoon, his anxiety rose. And because he's been working with mindfulness for so many decades, he, he became interested and curious about that. And he played an experiment where he was, he would set down the thoughts about the board meeting and watch the anxiety subside. And then he'd deliberately bring to mind the board meeting and watch the anxiety come up. And he just kept playing with it for the whole walk, watching his anxiety rise and fall as he brought in the thought of that board meeting and then set down the thought of the board meeting. And the point of that story when he was telling it was to show the conditioned nature of the relationship between thoughts and emotions. So we think, you know, that the board meeting is stressing me out. But really, what's stressing me out is my thoughts about the board meeting. <laughs> and this is why it's so helpful to cultivate mindfulness of thoughts. But when we can, we can see, oh, you know, there's some difficult emotion arising. What story am I telling? What's going on up in here? You know, what thoughts are related to these challenging emotions that are increasing dukkha, that are increasing suffering? Joseph was on a beautiful walk. And when he set down the thoughts of the board meeting, his peace increased and it wasn't like he then decided to skip the board meeting it's not about avoiding anything it's about seeing when our thoughts are helpful and when they're not helpful and when we can see this when we can see oh these thoughts are making me depressed or angry or anxious or totally freaked out but what's actually happening is I'm on a beautiful walk. Or for me, usually it's like I, I'll, I'll be upset about something. I'll drop into the present moment. These thoughts are upsetting me. And what's actually happening is I'm, I'm sitting here on the couch in my living room. A neutral moment, you know, that is being imbued with suffering because of the thoughts that are being entertained in my head right then. Now, this isn't to say that, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, the pain of pain and the pain of change don't come up regularly because they do. 
And even those moments when we check into the present moment and there's legitimate pain going on, which is very common, even those moments are not in any way served by thoughts that are flaming, that are fanning those flames. I invite you just to just to try this out really quite simply with me right now. We can try it. It works all the ways. If we spend, if if our minds are occupied with distress, we can feel the emotion begin to get engaged. And if our minds are occupied with uh, something beautiful, happy, good, then we can feel those more open, pleasant emotions arising as well. So just very simple practice. Uh, think of something difficult. <laughs> And then just notice what happens in your energy. Notice that conditioned relationship between thought and emotion. Okay. And now I invite you to bring in a memory of something wonderful that's happened to you. Beautiful moment in your life. And as you call up that happy memory, Notice what happens to your emotional state. How do you feel when you have that recollection? So the Buddha observed this relationship between thoughts and, and emotions, citta, mind state. And he saw that a big part of alleviating suffering is working skillfully with the thinking mind. So the third foundation of mindfulness, or contemplation of mind, citta nupasana, which means observation of states of mind. We observe what's arising. And this is a, a brief paragraph from Buddhist scholar Bhikkhu Bodhi. When a particular state of mind is present, it's noted merely as a state of mind, not identified as I or mine. Whether it's a lofty state or a low state, there should be no elation or dejection, only a clear identification of the state 
without clinging to the desired ones or resenting the undesired ones. So in other words, I might notice anger arising and mindfulness has this quality of non-judgmental, non-judgmental knowing. So I can notice anger arising without negatively judging the anger. That's what the invitation is with mindfulness of mind states to notice them, simply to notice them. As contem this is Bhikkhu Bodhu again, as contemplation deepens, the seemingly solid, stable mind reveals itself to be a stream of mental acts flashing in and out of being, coming from nowhere and going nowhere, continuing in sequence without pause. So, as we bring our awareness, turn our awareness directly toward the thought. So, you know, we practice first with the body so that there's a little momentum mindfulness and then turn mindfulness toward the thoughts. And I can notice, oh, there's planning, remembering, rehearsing a conversation that I'll be having, you know, just the different kinds of things. Oh, there's craving a second piece of pie. Oh, there's resenting something my brother said. <laughs> Noting this without going, without the noticing feeding into more stories, just noticing. Just the noticing has this healing effect. Neuroscience has shown in, that People generally think that bringing awareness to or naming difficult thoughts and emotions is a bad idea because people are afraid that if we notice or name them, we'll aggravate them or make them larger. However, when you put an MRI on someone's head and ask them to identify challenging thoughts and feelings, that actually diminishes activity in the amygdala and allows some space. It actually, because it's mindfulness, that mindfulness has this capacity to both diminish the fear and anxiety of the reptilian brain and then also uplift and augment states of peace. So what Bhikkhu Bodhi is saying, what we notice that the seemingly solid, stable mind reveals itself to be a stream of mental acts flashing in and out of being, helps us understand what science has proven to be true, which is we're not our thoughts. And as we practice, we more and more realize we are under no obligation to identify with our thoughts. They're conditioned, thoughts and emotions are conditioned. They keep arising and passing away in response to experience. And we can begin to discern, as I mentioned, which ones are helpful to our own peace, to our courage, to our ability to connect and be out in the world, which ones are helpful and which ones are limiting, increasing our suffering, 
increasing our anxiety and sorrow. And, you know, it, it's not an overnight process, obviously. However, even little small changes to the narrative that we've been living with and identifying a self can make a really big difference to diminishing suffering. This is, uh, I want to read you a little bit from Eckhart Tolle about the thinking mind because I think he describes it so well. What has happened through the gradual evolution of thinking is that now humans tend to overthink. There's a lot of not only unnecessary thinking that generates unnecessary, in many cases, non-existent problems, such as when you lie awake at night in bed and start worrying. It generates a lot of unnecessary unhappiness. People don't realize that a significant part of the unhappiness in their lives is actually generated by negative, often destructive mind activity, and they don't even know it. Mindfulness is first of all discovering the simple fact that there's a voice in your head that continually comments on your life and on what's happening around you. It's the self-talk. Everybody knows what their self-talk is in that you talk to yourself. Sometimes you talk to yourself in the first person, I, and some people talk to themselves in the second person, you, you. So you can get annoyed with yourself and then say, you shouldn't have done that. And then you have another thought, yes, but I couldn't help it. And sometimes when you listen to the person walking in the street muttering and you say, oh, he's really insane, but it might be that you're doing the same thing, but just not out loud, it's in your head. Why didn't I watch? Oh, should I have said that? Why didn't I say that? Next time he does it, I'm not exactly normal. I'm not going to reply. And it goes on and on. Or you lie awake at night and start worrying and wake up. Oh my God, what's going to happen? Whatever. That doesn't work. If that goes wrong, what if he does? And then you know, no, no, no. And this all impacts the body. This is still Eckhart Tolle. The body cannot distinguish between an actual reality, an event that's happening in real life, and what your mind is saying. So when you have fearful thoughts, the body reacts to every fearful thought, the emotion that you feel in your body. Like I'm in danger, there's danger here, and you feel anxiety. The spiritual awakening is to discover that there's this continuous mind activity. For most people, it's negative or has a negative bias. But the vital thing is discovering that there's this continuous talk in your head, which is consider considered the normal human state. And you can't abolish thinking. There will be thinking. But the question is, is there an awareness behind the thinking? So that's what we want to cultivate. So when we're any moment of mindfulness that we have is supporting the capacity to turn to either drop the thought or turn back and see the thought. So mindfulness, any way you practice it, whether it's feeling your steps as you, you know, walk over to the kitchen or you do a morning meditation practice or 
you feel your hands on the steering wheel as you drive to work. Every single moment of that is supporting this freedom from this basically challenging trance that's exacerbating, you know, life's already hard. And then there's this little voice going and activating our emotions in a way that makes it harder. It's very poignant, actually. And it gets more than poignant, it gets really sad because we believe our thoughts so utterly that we act on them. And when they are not, when our thoughts are not kind, when our thoughts are mean, either mean to ourselves or mean to others, and we believe them and we act on them, oh my gosh, the suffering's just going through the roof. So when we become aware of thought and we become aware that we're not we, I, you and me, we are not our thoughts. The thinking mind produces about 70,000 thoughts per day. It's just going all the time. And it's, where does it get all these thoughts? There's two things going on. Habit, it's what, what's been learned and heard and read and taken in over the decades. That's part of it for sure, that's the foundation. And then it has the capacity to make associations so, you know, it has this little bunch of information here and then it, it can go, it's pretty cool actually if it weren't dangerous. It's actually really super cool in so, so many ways. All our creativity and humor and love and collaboration and uh, all the good also comes from this same thinking mind that can associate. So it has one little piece of information and then it can go, it can go, Boop, 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 boop. Oh, it connects over here and it can realize new things. It's wonderful, except for the shadow side, it's so not wonderful. So it's the joys and the sorrows right here in our own heads. So with mindfulness though, we begin to see since we're not our thoughts, when we don't have to be in con controlled by them, we can begin to discern. We can begin to discern which ones are serving us and continue to really choose and cultivate those. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But this, but even just the, the capacity to be aware builds up our resilience in terms of our response to thoughts and our capacity to not believe them verbatim as they are spewing out, but more make choices about which ones to let go of and which ones to to follow. I want to read you something, and I actually can't remember if I read this. I might have read this to you already two weeks ago, but I thought, well, if I did, it bears repeating. I myself have read this passage over and over and over again. I love it so much. I think it's a really important point. So this is from Christina Feldman, awesome book called Boundless Heart, The Buddhist Path of Kindness, Compassion, Joy, and Equanimity. Absolutely excellent book. It's on page six. 
We are unlikely to wake in the morning and determine that this is a good day to be anxious, aversive, or judgmental. It can be deeply uncomfortable to see how impulsive and habitual many of our reactions and patterns are. Yet they are not a life sentence. Just because many of the habit patterns that create suffering have a long history does not mean they have an equally long future. They arise in the present and can be transformed in the present. Mindfulness is the antidote to emotional and psychological habit. Experientially, we come to understand that mindfulness and habit cannot coexist. Experientially, we come to understand mindfulness and habit cannot coexist. Our times of being lost in habit are the most unconscious moments in our lives and often our moments of greatest reactivity and pain. Mindfulness has the effect of dissolving habit one moment at a time. Yay! Yay! So dissolving habit when it doesn't serve us is so great. It's like the best aspect of evolution. So that's, that's the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind states. And you can practice it just by turning toward thoughts and naming it thinking. You can name the specific types of thoughts, as I mentioned. And then I just want to mention one other practice before I go into a, another another related practice uh, related to mindfulness. But in the while I'm talking about mindfulness, another practice that you may know is called RAIN, the acronym RAIN. RAIN was, um, the acronym was invented by the Buddhist teacher Michelle McDonald back in the early 90s. And when she created it, it stood for there's a phenomena arising internally a mind state and you can recognize it that's the r and then allow it to be there which is already radical that's equanimity but rather than fighting it or resisting it give it a little space to just be present and then the i is investigate um, to turn toward it rather than away, but rather to turn toward and learn more about it. How does, what are the thoughts? What are the stories? And what are the emotions? And how are they felt in the body? You know, investigating and coming to know. And then when Michelle created RAIN, the end stood for non-identification. As we begin more and more to see that these things are, are, conditioned and habitual and not who we are. Then in recent years, like I'm going to say the last 15 years, Tara Brock, another fantastic Buddhist teacher, started working with RAIN and, and has books on RAIN now. She's, and she teaches it. And if this practice appeals to you, just go to her website and she's got lots of recordings with different ways to work skillfully with RAIN. And they're very accessible and and very helpful. She uses also a, a difficult mind state typically, but any mind state arises, 
recognize, allow, investigate. And then she took the N because of the way we Westerners have a tendency to uh, beat ourselves up so much. And uh, yeah, that whole aspect of reality for so many, she took the N and, and turned it to nurture, basically to bring in compassion. Um, so recognize, allow, investigate, nurture, because even though thoughts and emotions are deeply interrelated and condition each other, thoughts can pop like a bubble as soon as you bring mindfulness to them, but emotions are slower. And so I might notice that I, you know, was thinking about the scary board meeting, but unlike Joseph, Goldstein, I don't have the capacity to like watch my <laughs> anxiety diminish in a matter of seconds. If my anxiety has been activated, meaning cortisol and adrenaline have been released and there's a contraction and the so forth in the body and it's no fun, it takes a while for it to diminish even with the presence of mindfulness. And what really helps with uh, when we're recognizing and bringing mindfulness to distressing mind states is to bring in some self-compassion. So soothing touch, kind language, like phrases like, may I hold myself in kindness? Or if we're dealing with a difficult mind state of another being or, or lots of other beings, then compassion phrases, I care about this pain. So often it's skillful when we're dealing with these habitual negative negativity bias <laughs> habits of mind to, to utilize compassion. It's a really, really helpful support. So mindfulness itself is a really great wonderful tool for working with minds, thoughts, mind states, and even the deep inquiry like in the RAIN practice is really, really helpful. And I want to share one more practice that uh, I'll share in two different ways, but one practice that also works really well. And we just use our own wisdom about which of these practices we want to try or work with, just what resonates in, in the moment or over a period of time. There's just plain mindfulness. There's the deep inquiry of RAIN practice. And then there is deliberately choosing to replace an unhelpful thought with a helpful thought. William James said, the greatest weapon against stress is our ability to choose one thought over another. And this is the quote that if you saw the uh, Insight Berkeley email that went out, this is the quote that I sent, this is the Buddha, watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. As the shadow follows the body, 
as we think, so we become. With mindfulness, we more and more observe that these stressful thoughts activate the emotions and, we, and our suffering increases. And we equally can observe that when, we, when the mind is either naturally or for whatever reason has landed in a place of uh, love, and by love, I mean the Buddhist understanding of love, meaning befriending ourselves, each other, the moment, a befriending kind of a relationship to what is. When we are in that kind of a state, our well-being goes through the roof. There is a very direct link between what Buddhism, for lack of a better word, are called wholesome mind states and inner peace. And this is what the Buddha was talking about when he was talking about freedom from suffering. We are not going to change in this lifetime the pain of pain or the pain of change. But when we learn that we can work with the pain of reactivity, with mindfulness, with deep inquiry, and with straight up replacing distressing mind states with uh, uplifting frames on reality, we benefit and with because we are authentically feeling peace, we benefit everyone around us. One of the issues that can come up for us with this invitation is the concern about authenticity. You know, like, yeah, but these, this is how my mind works, you know? And this is just what it does and that's who I am, that identification with our habits of mind Mindfulness can show us, though, we can see that typically these mind habits are repetitive. They show up and then they show up again and they show up again. It's neural firings that have been learned and repeated. And when we see that it's much more about habit and much less about who we are, then there can be more willingness to replace a habit that increases suffering and it takes effort but it's not impossible with a habit that decreases suffering meaning a habit of noticing and offering a new frame on uh, what is arising in the present moment whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral and then that changes our whole our whole uh, reality. This is a story of unknown origin. A stranger walked toward the gates of a new city. By the side of the road sat an old wise woman who hailed the traveler, welcome. What kind of people are they who live here? The traveler asked. How did you find them in the home city you left? Asked the wise woman. 
They were gossips, mean-spirited and often selfish, difficult to get along with. You'll find the people of this city to be likewise. Later, a second stranger passed by and was welcomed by the old woman. What kind of people are they who live here? The second traveler asked. How did you find them in your home city? They were fine people, industrious, open-minded, and easy to get along with. You'll find the people in this city to be likewise. The Buddha, as we think, so we become. Just to say that when I say this story is an unknown origin, it's because I don't know who wrote it, but it appears in a book of quotes gathered by Jack Cornfield called The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness, and Peace. So I have had to have a lot of dental work over the years, and I just dread the dentist, as most people do. I'm sorry if you're a dentist. We're very grateful for your service. <laughs> and when I learned that uh, I could do this thing, I, could, I, I didn't have to kind of be at the mercy of my frightened thoughts. I could, I could deliberately... Uh, choose a different thoughts, I started practicing metta when I went to the dentist. And now it's habitual. When I go to the dentist, the metta phrases, may we be safe, may we be peaceful, may we be healthy, may we be at ease. They just roll out of me and comfort me the whole time I'm there. So the reactivity is a habit. Yikes, the dentist. Metta begins as a practice, a deliberate practice, that's where the effort comes in. And then it gets habituated too, so that the mind just starts offering it. The mind habituates the new, the new habit if we practice it enough to make it a habit. So the Buddha taught about this strategy in the Vitakasantana Sutta, Sutta on Working with Thoughts. And I'm just going to read you one passage from that teaching. The Blessed One, the Buddha, said, There is the case where thoughts imbued with craving, aversion, or delusion arise in a practitioner. The practitioner should attend to another theme apart from that one, connected with what is skillful. When the practitioner is attending to this other theme connected with what is skillful, then those unskillful thoughts imbued with craving, aversion, or delusion are abandoned and subside. With their abandoning, the practitioner steadies the mind right within, settles it, unifies it, and concentrates it brings us closer to peace. Just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice would use a small peg, boop, to knock out, drive out, and pull out a larger one, in the same way, if unskillful thoughts imbued with craving, aversion, or delusion arise in the practitioner, they should attend to another theme connected with what is skillful. So that's what we're talking about. This is actually, I invite you to really work with this. Just try it and then see what happens. Notice that, you know, there's some negative ruminating going on, which is very human, very natural. 
no self-blame. And then try that, boop, popping it out with something else. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm, you know, feeling really hopeless about this particular challenge in my life. And it's getting me really sad and bummed out. Oh, okay. Let me spend some time with self-compassion phrases. May I accept myself as I am? You know? So there's a practice uh, I want to just share with you as we come towards the close here. Um, this was adapted. So Rick Hansen, many of you know, is a neuroscientist and researcher and Buddhist teacher who's quite marvelous, quite a marvelous teacher. And um, he teaches this um, same thing that I just shared with you from the Buddha about really deliberately turning the mind toward uh, either metta, befriending, compassion or self-compassion, appreciation or gratitude or equanimity. And these four are the divine abodes of the heart in Buddhism. They're, they're four superpower energies that we can at any time choose to incline toward. So he teaches that we can do that. So somebody else who I'm sorry to say I don't have the name of right now, um, created a practice called Noticed sh Notice, Shift, Rewire. Notice, Shift, Rewire. Um, and I, I want to just share a little bit from this practice and then lead us through it. Notice, shift, rewire. This simple strategy puts into practice the core insight coming out of the neuroscience revolution of the past 30 years. The insight that, in the words of early neuroscientist Donald Hebb, neurons that fire together wire together. It's the insight that reminds us the brain isn't fixed. Its habits aren't like plaster. They're more like plastic strong enough to resist the occasional push, but pliable enough to change in response to repeated effort. That's the magic of notice, shift, rewire. By taking a moment each day to bring our attention to this practice, we build the habit of shifting out of negativity bias to more useful mind states, remembering our past wins, celebrating our strengths, and seeing life as a series of opportunities rather than a relentless slog through setbacks and heartbreak. How do you integrate this practice of notice shift rewire into the midst of everyday life? Three steps. One, notice your negativity bias. The first step is to bring awareness to this ordinary habit of the mind. Catch yourself when you slip into self-doubt negative rumination, anxiety, and fear. Notice when your mind starts spinning out worst case scenarios about how it's all going to come crashing apart. Two, shift to a moment of gratitude. 
So in this practice, they're moving us to gratitude and, and that's fabulous. We can just take this verbatim, it's fabulous. And again, as we're aware, gratitude isn't the only wholesome state. So sometimes self-compassion might be, might more hit the mark. <laughs> But gratitude is a really good one. And I notice when I'm really spinning out, like low serotonin, middle of the night, wake up, brain has already gone deep into negativity bias, gratitude can really help. So anyway, two, shift to a moment of gratitude. Shifting allows you to flood your mind with the more productive focus of attention. A few seconds of gratitude is the most effective way to do this. Think of one thing you're grateful for right now. Your home, your job, your health, your family, your talents, your strength. You know, sometimes I can't think of anything. And when that happens, I'll be grateful for running water. You know, just find something. And then the third step is rewire, re meaning rewire the brain. Rick Hansen calls this a simple act of savoring, taking a few seconds to stay with this new mindset, in this case gratitude, to encode it deep into the fabric of your mind. This last step is where we transform our ordinary habit of overlooking the positive. It's where we shift the brain's response to all the good in life from Teflon to Velcro. We're flipping our evolved wiring on its head, taking just a few seconds to build stronger memories around the good things happening in this life. This practice takes less than 30 seconds. So let's just do it now. Just, um, Take a moment of mindfulness. We don't have to invoke any particular mind state. Just notice what's here with you now. It could be neutral, could be challenging, could even be pleasant. Whatever's there, let it be there. And now we're just practicing the replacing the replacing what's present, whatever's present by deliberately bringing up to our minds something we're grateful for right now. And then savor it. Really let yourself turn toward that thing you're grateful for and appreciate it. All right, that is the practice. Okay, thanks everybody. We have a few minutes left. If I liked how um, last week when we had our guest uh, Amitana Santi, after she was done spoke speaking, she said, I'd love to hear about the impact. <laughs> and I would too, I think that's a good way to say, 
any, you know, how did this land for you? Any questions or comments or thoughts are welcome. Nathan. Thanks so much, Eve, for the talk. Um, I find it very timely, very opportune and applicable in my life and mind state where things are at right now. So thank you. Um, this was a helpful, helpful talk. Oh, um, great. Question for me is um, over the last, you know, couple of weeks as I've been kind of in a little bit of a churn, a little bit of a reeling from my own thoughts, I've been trying to like change my relationship with the anxious thoughts that I have of like trying to see the wisdom in them that there's a deeper message maybe not the literal message of what they're saying but there's a deeper message of maybe some wisdom mm -hmm. and it's been very difficult but I wanted to know if you had any thoughts of like is that a fruitful approach or like just what your thoughts are of, of that yeah yeah so just to clarify um are you saying that in, in working with anxious thoughts, you're you're looking for the like the the kernel of wisdom in them? Exactly. Like like oh, I was so distracted. I should have been working. Why was I like off doing something else? And like oh, maybe the the wisdom in this is like, hey Nathan, maybe you should maybe think about you know, have you done all the things on your checklist? Maybe we've got some things to, to support my colleagues on or something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. I'm like turning the phrase a little bit yeah right right yeah so i have a couple of thoughts about that um just from my own life and my own practice one is um, a method that i learned from donald rothberg you, you know i'm co-teaching the transforming judgmental mind with and his method is um we notice um well you're saying anxious thoughts but i'll just I'll just say the the negative judgment thought, but that may not be exactly right to what you're saying, but but I think maybe the method might be useful. Notice it, you know, name what the thought is, really get clear on what the thought is, and then drop the story and drop awareness down into the body, particularly the, the upper torso, but wherever we tend to feel emotion, and notice what's there and just be present with that. So it's interesting because that takes us out of analyzing the thoughts themselves, takes us down into the body where because of the relationship between thoughts and emotions, a lot of the reactivity resides. And just being present somatically with that reactivity can calm it. And then there's the possibility of discerning, of seeing, was there something in that initial judgment or thought or, or whatever it was um, that was, that was um, pointing out, as you just said, pointing out something useful. When we find that wisdom or that potentially we think we may have found what that wisdom was and it's not being fueled by reactivity, then there may be a creative different response to the initial wisdom. So if what I'm thinking is, 
you know, I, and I, you said this, but I've had these exact same thoughts too. You know, I was so distracted. I have like six more things on my to-do list. What the heck? And kind of getting on my case, I might come back to that same, same six things are not done. But instead there can be, I can approach them rather than with reactivity and meanness, I can now approach them with compassion. Like, you know, let's let's just gently approach what's possible. We just, you know, there's a whole kind of new possible way of relating to the initial thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question, thank you. And that brings us to time. Oh. Uh, let's see. I think I saw a couple quick hands. We have two minutes left. So Jeannie, can you, would you be willing to be somewhat quick? I'm going to invite you to unmute. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sorry. Hi, good to see you. Wonderful to see you too, Eve. I just joined late. And so I know this is the first time I've been here. I see this being recorded. Is there a way? I would love to hear your full talk. Is there a way that I can uh, access that? Yeah, my friend Phil, who's here looking cozy, <laughs> is going to is going to uh, put it on the uh, insightberkeley.org website. So okay. it'll be up there in a week or so. Yeah. I appreciate that. So yes, wonderful. I hope to see you again soon. Yeah, thank you for coming. Great to see you. Love to be here. Thank you, sweetie. Yeah, and I, Jim, did you want to say something super quick before we go? No? Okay. All right. May the merit of our practice. Oh, Kimberly's saying yay to awakening joy. <laughs> May the merit of our practice be for the benefit of all beings everywhere, including ourselves. May all beings everywhere be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings everywhere know peace and the causes of peace. Thank you, blessings, wishing you well in these winter times. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.